Well, here we are at the conclusion of the Bible study for the semester. We are going to head into Revelation chapter 5, but we're going to go other places in the Old and in the New Testament uh, throughout the hour that we're together, roughly 45 minutes. What time is it? Okay. Uh, as I mentioned last week, that um, I think that the scene that unfolds before us here is one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting event in all of history. And we see this glorious scene in the very throne room of the universe. And the one seated on the throne is holding a seven-sealed scroll in his hand. Now, I know there are other interpretations as to what that scroll might be, what it might contain, and I will leave it to you to search that out, and you should do, to find what you believe it to be. The Lord never tells us exactly, but I think the typography through all of the Old Testament and into the New um, support the fact that I believe it is the title deed to the planet Earth. So today we're going to take that tack, but I do want you to know just as diligent students of the word, there are other interpretations of what that might be. What I believe is happening here is that not only is it the title deed to the planet, but that it was written when the original recipient of the property lost it back in the Garden of Eden. We have to always remember that God, Elohim, is creator. He is creator of this planet, the solar system, the universe, whatever might be beyond that, and all that in them is. They belong to him. But he gifted to Adam, just like he gifted to Abraham and his descendants forever, specific portions of land. Creator God gave possession of the planet to Adam. In Genesis chapter 1, he told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. He said, subdue it, have dominion over it or rule over all of the planet earth. Part of that rule was cultivating and keeping, and that included naming all of the various kinds in, in the sea, in the air, and on the land. And y'all, you don't name something that isn't yours. It would not be appropriate for any of us to wander over to our neighbor's property and start naming stuff. Bring out your animals, bring out your children. I'm going to pronounce their names upon them now. You name what you own. And so that was part of the tending of the garden. Adam named everything. Now, of course, he didn't have neighbors, but you get the point. He named everything because they were his by gift of God. And then Satan deceived Eve. Adam chose to disobey, and with that stroke, the possession of the planet fell from man. Adam had been given title deed to the entire planet, and when he sinned, he handed over the rights to use it to Satan. In the language of the law, Adam sold the land, and Satan was the recipient of it. And the only way that it can be redeemed the only way it can be restored is through the act of redemption. Adam had to have a goel, a near kinsman. His goel had to be willing and able 
to pay the full redemption price. And when that debt was satisfied, everything that was lost could be restored. But since that very great and sorrowful day, there have been many, many ancestors of Adam who have been very willing to take possession of this planet. There have been Nero's and Hitler's and Caesar's and even Satan himself. They're all willing to take possession of the planet. But able or worthy? Absolutely not. What could possibly be the price of redemption for such a property loss? What could the terms of that transaction be? As I said last week, uh, we can only surmise what was written on the outside of that scroll that is in the hand of him who sits on the throne. But what if it said something like the blood of the perfect, sinless, spotless kinsman of Adam? And it continued to delineate through Abraham, out of the tribe of Judah, all the way down through Ruth, the Moabitess, to David. If you have ever taken the time to read the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, what if all of those names that lead us to Mary and Joseph were written on the outside of that scroll? And then the, the uh, other terms of redemption, the shedding of blood and so forth. What if all of those things were written on the outside of the scroll, but me just telling you that is too easy. In fact, if you take the time to read all those genealogies, as laborious as that can sometimes feel, that's too easy. What does redemption look like? Well, I want to take a look at it. I want to see what it looks like. So we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 50, 50. Isaiah 50, we're going to look at verse 6, and then we're going to jump to chapter 52, and we are going to take some time so that we have a clear picture in our eyes today. What was the price? What was the redemption price for the planet Earth? Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Are you there? All right, here we go. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. If you pull a man's beard out of his face, that's going to leave a mark. Jump to chapter 52, verse 14. God is speaking. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. His physical frame, his face and his body were marred more than any man. By the time the Redeemer was hanging on the cross, he no longer looked human. Go to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, and we will read most of this chapter. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 3, and constantly remind yourself, we're looking at the cost of redemption. This is what it looks like. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we 
did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed." You know, when they scourged someone back in the day, the purpose of it was to get you to confess to the crime that you had been committed and to name anyone who was guilty with you in that crime. And Jesus never said a word. Because if he did, he would have had to name me. Because I was the guilty one that was involved in it with him. But he did not open his mouth. Look what it says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, verse 7. Oh, excuse me, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but... The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, this one I don't even understand at all. I do not know what it means that God, in human form, has a soul that could be put to anguish. I don't even understand what that means, y'all. And yet it's part of the redemption price. Look what it says, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the father, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Y'all, that is what redemption looks like. And it looks like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It looks like Psalm 22 and a lot of other Scripture passages, Jesus Christ is the second Adam, his blood relative. It required a near kinsman, a blood relative to do the work of redemption. And Jesus bought it all back when he declared it is finished. That can be translated paid in full. Whatever was written on the outside of that scroll, paid in full. And it was accepted by the Father in heaven. Because we know that, because the work of redemption didn't end at the cross. There was also a grave, and then there was a resurrection, and then an ascension. 
all of it is proof that the sacrifice that was made at Calvary was satisfactory, that it was accepted by the Father in heaven. All of creation now since that day has been groaning and waiting for the events of Revelation 5 to unfold. But in order to accomplish that work of redemption, God the Son had to become a man so that he could be the near kinsman of Adam. Did you ever wonder why in the world God would have to, first of all, be made a man and why he would do it? Has that ever just boggled your mind? Well, we're going to look at some verses now. I will have them up here for you because I want to read this one out of the New Living Translation. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18 for your notes. But you follow along here. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We all know that Jesus came to help the descendants of Abraham, not to help the angels. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation, he is able. I love that word, able. Obey. He is able to help us when we are being tempted. Hallelujah. He had to be made man. He had to put on flesh to dwell among us. He was, as we read in the King James Version, I love this. He was... Uh, Hebrews 4, 15, in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin, the perfect spotless lamb. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, he, Jesus Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not clutch it. He did not cling to it. No, y'all, he let it go. He let it go, but he emptied himself, verse 7 there, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the last one for now, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father, he made him, Jesus Christ the Son, who knew no sin. He made him sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He had to be made man so he could be your nearest kinsman and redeem you from the enemy. And this he did willingly. And like we saw in the type that Boaz set before us, just redeeming the land, that, that whole deal was just part of the transaction in order to get the bride. And now John, the beloved disciple, is going to describe for us this ultimate real estate transaction. 
as we see in Revelation 5, this transaction finally come to its full fruition. Jesus did pay for everything on the cross, yes, but he has not yet taken possession of all that he paid for. So that's what we're going to see, these events in Revelation chapter 5. That's why I think it's the most exciting event in history. We see here the Father seated on his heavenly throne, and he's holding that seven-sealed scroll in his right hand of power. But only the willing and able Goel was worthy to lay hold of that scroll and to break its seals. Anybody, any unworthy person who even attempted to approach that throne would have been obliterated, I imagine. Uh, only the willing and able kinsman who was worthy had the access to the throne of God to be able to walk right up to it and take it. There was no Son of Adam, found worthy. You remember we read those verses last week. They inventoried earth and heaven and under the earth, and there was no son of Adam found worthy. And that caused John's reaction. Remember, he wept convulsively, sobbed convulsively when he realized that they had looked over all the available real estate and there was no one. That phrase, before we move to Revelation 5 proper, that phrase, weep greatly, is the same phrase that's used in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. And I just want you to get a sense of the depth of emotion. In Matthew 2, 18, it says, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. That's the phrase, the great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. That is the result of Herod's having slaughtered all the children aged two and under in and around the Bethlehem area in his attempt to try to kill he who was born king of the Jews. Women, imagine if your children, your grandchildren were ripped out of your arms and slaughtered right before you. And the mandate was kill the boys. But do you think those Roman soldiers would have really taken the time to check to see if they had a boy or a girl in their hands? That kind of mourning, that horrible sobbing at the slaughter of those babes is the same depth of emotion that John is feeling when he sees there's no one found worthy because John understood that if there is no Goel, when the terms of redemption are due, then that piece of property could be lost to the family forever. And he understood no son of Adam in all the real estate inventoried could go up to that throne, let alone take the scroll, and he understood that meant the planet and all that was in it would fall into the possession of the current landholder, Satan himself. And that's why he wept convulsively. None worthy, no, not one, except the one, the one and only. Now, in the midst of this tragic scene where, where um, John is just weeping, this thrilling moment is going to take place. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He alone is able to approach the throne, write to the Father, and take that scroll out of his hand because he is the perfect Goel, the nearest kinsman who was not only willing but able to do the work of redemption. All that the law required, it is truly finished indeed. Glory, hallelujah. I love this moment. So here we have Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. 
It says, and one of the elders said to me, John is writing, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Oh, this is sweet. Behold him. Behold him, y'all. Look right at him. Your redeemer lives. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the one who came from Boaz and Ruth, the root of David. Verse 6 starts, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And at this point, I have to switch to the King James because the King James captures something that is left out of some other translations. It says, And I beheld and lo. When you get a beheld and a low together, that is significant. That tells us that whatever the human senses can comprehend, this is the deepest, most significant, impacting sensation that we are capable of. Now, John was told, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He turns then and he says, and behold, lo. He's told to look at the lion, but when he turns, what does he see? A lamb as if slain. What does a slain lamb look like? What will we see when we behold him? When you are standing in his presence in glory, what will we see? Does your redeemer bear the marks of his suffering even through eternity? We know he bore them in his resurrected body. He told Thomas, put your hands in the wounds of my crucifixion. And in fact, I'm always amazed when I read those resurrection accounts, nobody recognized him. Here on the morning of the resurrection, one as close to him as Mary did not know who he was until he spoke her name. It was the sound of his voice, not the appearance of that face that had been marred more than any man. I'm saying you rip a man's beard out, it's going to leave a scar. She thought he was the gardener until he said Mary. And then she recognized that sweet pronouncement of her name. The disciples didn't even know who he was until he did something familiar or the situation was something they had seen before. When those hands, now so scarred, when they took bread to break it, was it the gesture that they'd seen dozens and dozens of times relived before them? You know, when you see someone move a certain way, you know who it is. Even if you can't see their face, they saw that familiar gesture or maybe that action exposed again those scars. And then there was that morning when Jesus is on the shore and he's cooking breakfast and he says to the boys on the boat, did you try your nets on the other side? Peter said, I know who, we've done this before. I recognize the situation. And he was out of the boat swimming to shore because he said, it's the Lord. But even then they're sitting around the fire with him and they're all like, none of us were going to say we, who we thought he was. They didn't recognize him so physically shaken. I mean, changed was he. When John turns to look at the lion, what he sees is the lamb as if, as if slain. Behold and lo. He continues, verse 6, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the whole earth. Seven horns are indicative of perfect, complete power or honor. And the seven eyes, they are symbolic of 
perfect or complete understanding and knowledge. And the seven spirits of God are listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Verse 7 here in Revelation 5 says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, now I would stop there again, the words took and the phrase had taken, that's a Greek word, lambano. Lambano means to lay hold of a thing in order to put it to use. A thing or a person. If God has laid hold of you and he puts you to use, you have been lambanoed. Okay? It also can be translated to get it back. So whatever was written in that scroll, only Jesus was worthy to lay hold of it and put it to its intended use to get it back. So that's what that word means. In verse 8 again, when he had lambano the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a golden harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I believe these 24 elders are a representation of the church. That's us. That we have at this moment in history, either through the, the death that overtakes us or the rapture which blesses us. Either way, I believe that the church, the bride of Christ is in heaven to witness this. Eyewitnessing this moment in history. It's glorious and victorious and it's monumental. And we are there to see it happen. Our Lord Jesus, because he is all power. He is all all knowing and all understanding. And because he was willing and able, he alone, again, was worthy to walk up to the Father on his throne and to lay hold of that scroll. All that Adam was lost is in that moment restored and worship breaks out in heaven. And we're going to be there to join in the chorus, so get excited. And these are your lyrics, so learn these lyrics today because this is your part. There's, there's lyrics and choreography. For those of you who are musical fans, you fall down in worship, choreography, and you sing a song, okay? So here we go, Revelation 5, 9. And they, that's us, these are the elders. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. And here again, I have to go back to the King James. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. Hallelujah. By the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us Unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. The bride of Christ is in heaven at this point. And to me, this little indication here, this little verse section, is another proof that we have been raptured and we are standing in heaven before the great tribulation begins because none of the seals have been opened at this point. And there are lots of people in heaven. Look at the numbers that are going to be discussed here. Oh, if it were only the call to heaven. <laughs> I'm good to go. But I will tell you, we are not going to go into the breaking of the seals, that part of the story in this study. But so you know, as you continue to read through Revelation, the breaking open of the seals unleash that time period that we call the Great Tribulation Period. And we're already in heaven before even the first seal is broken.
So we pick it up in verse 11. Then I looked, says John, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. I believe that's us. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive. There's that word lambano again. He is Worthy to take hold of and put to its proper use or to get back these seven things. Power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Y'all, we are going to be worshiping our Goel for so many reasons. Just a few, just to name a few. We are going to worship him for who he is. He is God, our Redeemer. And we're going to worship him for what he does Right now, he stands interceding between us and the Father, that office of the great high priest. He's functioning that now. We worship him now for all that he is doing, and we worship him for where he is. He's not in a manger, and he's not on a cross. He is in the very center of the throne room of God on high. Verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Hallelujah. This is another one of those moments that just grabs my imagination. Every created thing. Let your imagination go for a minute and think about something that has been created. You remember the rocks that didn't cry out? Well, they're going to get their chance on this day. Every created thing, air molecules, mountains, trees. This would be a great day to be at the zoo if we weren't already in heaven. Every created thing will be given a voice on this day, in this moment, to worship the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth and all that in them is. And we're going to be right there with them. And look what it says. <sighs> Every created thing is going to say, blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever. Listen, if we don't do that now, the rocks are going to do the job for us someday. We need to be in the habit of praising and worshiping God with this kind of authenticity today and not wait for the day that we stand before him. I was really struck this week as I was preparing these notes to think about all that Jesus left in order to be made man. And then I was further considering that it doesn't really matter one iota what this world thinks of Jesus Christ. What matters is what heaven thinks of him. He is ever and has ever been the object of worship in heaven. And we need to have that kind of an attitude now. And for the rest of the days of our earthly pilgrimage, we need to be sure that in our heart, we have him enthroned. And that when we say that he inhabits the praises of his people, not wait for this day for that to take place. And not wait for the soundtrack to worship him, to live a life of worship, sitting, standing, eating, driving, living, moving, doing all the things that we do, that worship should be something that marks us as God-loving women here and now. That's impressive. 
And look at verse 14, the latter part of it. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders, that's us, fell down and worshiped. Our God is mighty to save and to restore and to redeem all that has been lost. And sisters, until this great day takes place, well, I tell you what, let's look at the back of the book. I know all the answers are always found in the back of the book. So go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. You ready? Okay. Here we go. Chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Amen and amen. His bride has made herself ready. And it is the desire of my heart, y'all. It has been the prayer of my heart this whole semester that you will have been refreshed and renewed in your tremendous love for your Redeemer. And that you have fallen in love with his word in a new and dynamic way. And that as we continue to put one foot in front of another and breathe the next breath of air, we will do it for the glory of the King, our blessed Redeemer, who was marred more than any man out of his great love for you. What a precious gift it is to be called the bride of Christ and to know that he is even now preparing a place for you so that he can come and snatch you out of this mess and take you to the Father's house where you will be able to spend the rest of eternity worshiping him and falling down before him and praising him for what he has done. Oh, there's not a thing left undone by your bridegroom. Let him woo your heart every day through the power of his word. Spend serious, devoted time in prayer, in worshiping him when no one else is watching, just in the privacy of your own heart. And see if that will empower you to get up and live a life that will be a glory to him. Because one of these days, soon and very soon, you're going to be presented with a golden bowl full of incense. How big is your bowl? And you'll be able to offer it to him as a sacrifice of praise. We're going to get to sing that song of the redeemed someday. Face to face with the one who loves us best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. It is light and life to us. And we don't want to be the people who wait to worship our bridegroom till we see him face to face. We want to make ourselves ready right now. And Lord, we can only do that by the power of your spirit. We want to live lives filled with worship so that we can add our voices to this great chorus of praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it is a name of our strength and our redeemer, our precious savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. And the bride of Christ said, amen. amen. Now, ladies.
Seriously, go and sin no more.